Hi, my name's Mike, and I just want to say, uh, yeah, Rob and Elle are friends of uh, mine and Quinn's, and I spent a few years at Bible College with Rob, and um, we're polar opposites, so he's, he's the guy that did well in, um, in many classes, and um, he's, he's big brain, right? But that's not why uh, I love hearing and knowing what Rob is doing. Um, I want to support Rob because he's a gospel guy. He's a Jesus guy. And um, I want to encourage all of us to be uh, as supportive as we can uh, to what have I done here? Is that better? Yes. Okay. All right. To support Rob and Elle in their ministry um, because what they're doing is for the gospel of Jesus. They love Jesus and they want others to as well. So um, I've said all that as an introduction to reading the Bible and, um, and Rob's going to preach from the passage that I'll be reading for us uh, and that reading is 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 starting from verse 11. Uh, so would you join me if you have a Bible with you? Otherwise the words will be up behind me. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. And now is the day of salvation. Thanks. I'll invite Rob up.
Thanks, Mike. And thanks so much for the privilege of being able to open up God's word with you today. As we come to it, let's pray and ask that God works in and amongst us. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this portion of your word. We thank you for 2 Corinthians and chapter 5 in particular. Lord, we pray tonight that your spirit would be working in each and every one of our hearts. That as we come to understand clearly what mission is, uh, you would be moving us uh, and motivating us to be involved in your mission in the world. And we pray it for Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. I was standing at the school gates and a friend came up and she said, oh, so are you guys still planning on going to Vanuatu? I said, yep. And she said, oh, that's amazing. It's so amazing what you're going to go do with the boys. What a great experience for them. What an exciting adventure for them. Uh, I can't even imagine what it would be like to live in a tropical paradise. I'm just, I'm just so incredible. I'm so jealous. She went on and on and on for about another few minutes about how excited she was for us. I think what she was doing as a lovely non-Christian lady was trying to rationalize out loud what on earth would compel us to leave the, the leafy north shore of Sydney to move to some rural part of a small, remote island in the middle of the South Pacific. And it struck me that this conversation would never have happened 150 years ago. Because 150 years ago, the islands were notorious for their cannibalism. Being a missionary to the South Pacific wasn't an adventure. It was a death sentence. If it wasn't a spear in your heart on the day that you landed, then it was the disease that took you in the first few months. And yet despite that, dozens of missionaries, dozens upon dozens left Europe and the Americas and Australia to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the South Pacific. And even though many of them knew they wouldn't survive long, they didn't stop coming. And it wasn't just the missionaries who showed incredible sacrifice. There were hundreds of supporters, thousands of supporters behind them, getting them to the South Pacific. Why? What motivates this type of zealous commitment to God's mission? What fueled this radical sacrifice? And today, Anzac Day, of all days, it is a great time for us to ponder what motivates radical sacrifice? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 has a bit of the answer for us. Because those first missionaries who went out, what compelled them? Was it just that God commanded them? Was it that they looked like a hero to the Christian community? Was it maybe like today? They, they, they think it's just about having an adventure. Well, today, from our section in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, we're going to see that the question of why get involved in mission and the motivation for being involved in mission comes from a clear understanding of what mission is. The question of why mission is answered when we see what mission is in the nature of mission itself you see, it doesn't matter whether your mission field is on the other side of the world, whether it's in Vanuatu or whether it's to your neighbour next door in Sydney. To be passionately committed to God's mission, we need a clear understanding of the very nature of mission itself. And that's what we're going to explore tonight in this part of Scripture. 
So, have 2 Corinthians chapter 5 open in your Bible if you have a Bible with you or pull it up on your device. I'm also going to have it on the screen for us as well, just in case. And here's a bit of an outline of where we're going tonight. First, we're going to start with a bit of the initial context that Paul sets up in verse 11 to 13. And then we're going to see these two fundamental characteristics of mission work, which Paul unpacks. And that is that first, mission is Christ-centered. And second, mission is God-given. So mission is Christ-centered and God-given. And when we grasp these, under these aspects of mission, then, then we're going to find the true and lasting motivation to get involved. So a bit of context to get started. We're jumping in the middle of 2 Corinthians, so a bit of context will help. This is a letter to the church in Corinth, and Paul is defending his actions as a missionary because the church has started to doubt. They're starting to doubt Paul himself, his competency in mission and ministry, but they're also starting to doubt his message. And so he's defending himself. And we jump in in chapter 5 in the middle of this defense. Let me read from verse 11. Read along with me. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's plain also to your conscience. You see, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again. We're giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. You see, there are some people in the Corinthian church, missionaries, in fact, who, who turned up. They call themselves super apostles. And earlier in the letter, we found out that Paul's very clear. These, these missionaries are motivated by profit. They're there to make money. And they're only interested in an outward appearance we see here in these verses. You see, these guys, they come across as gifted, professional speakers. They come across as, as missionaries who are blessed by the Lord. And in comparison, well, Paul is, is quite unimpressive. He, he comes across as weak. In fact, sometimes from this couple of verses, he comes across as out of his mind insane sometimes. But did you notice as we read those verses that Paul doesn't care what they thought? Because what matters is not the appearance of his mission, but his heart for mission. From these verses, he then goes on to unpack those two key aspects of gospel mission that drive this heart of his. And this is where he unpacks these two fundamental aspects of mission. So have a look at verse 14. He says here very clearly that the center of mission is Jesus Christ, and in particular, his love expressed in the gospel events. Have a look with me, verse 14. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, Paul's motivation is love. Love compels him. And love is a powerful motivator, isn't it? Love makes people do some pretty incredible things. Today is Anzac Day. 
I can tell you countless of stories. I'm sure you've heard countless stories of heroes of the Anzacs. We sometimes need to ask, what motivated these heroic acts? And I'm sure that many, many a time, the key motivator was love. It was love for their country, or love for their freedoms, or really love for their loved ones back home, their families, their friends who they wanted to protect, who they wanted to keep safe. And when they were on that battlefield, what is it that convinced them to ensure that they were fighting side by side? It was their love for their, their mates, their comrades, that saw incredible acts on those battlefields. You see, love is the most powerful motivator. I'm sure each of us could share stories of our own lives, whether we have done some pretty crazy things out of love, or we know people who've been motivated to do incredible things because of their love. What was Paul motivated by? He was motivated by Christ's love. You see... Paul's mission motivation was love. A love that was demonstrated. A love that was put into action. A love that was sacrificial. A love that was life-giving. A love that was so true and so deep and so unconditional that it changed everything. A love that didn't just change Paul but recreated him. Because that's the imagery he uses next. Look at verse 14. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. Behold, the new is here. A profound statement. Because when someone comes to believe in Jesus Christ, it doesn't just mean a change in behaviours. It doesn't just mean a change of beliefs. It doesn't just mean a change of perspectives or passions. It changes all those things and everything else. Because anyone who is in Christ isn't just changed. They're recreated. In Christ, the old is gone. All your sin, all your guilt, all your shame, all your fear, all gone. You are wholly new, completely forgiven, completely restored, recreated. And all because Christ so deeply loved. He loved so sacrificially. He loved so unconditionally. No greater love is there than this, that one laid down his life for his friends We hear that all the time in Hansack ceremonies, but it's about Christ and what he did on the cross for us sinners. That is incredible love. And it's incredibly good news, isn't it, for a broken world? Christ is at the centre of the gospel. And so Christ is, he must be at the centre of our ministry and our mission. So, uh, mission is Christ Centered, centered on Jesus. Here are some implications of that. It might sound obvious that Christ needs to be the centre of our mission work, and Christ needs to be at the centre of our lives if we're Christian. But it's all too common to push Jesus to the side. You see, he can be there, but just 
pushed to the side. In fact, some of those key challenges that I was unpacking about that faced the church in Vanuatu in the presentation earlier, things like uh, legalism, things like cultural Christianity, things like heretical groups coming into Vanuatu, which have just absolutely um, spiked in the last decade or so in Vanuatu. All of these challenges the church is facing have the same fundamental issue, I think. And what's that issue? They've sidelined Christ, his person and his work in the gospel. The centre has become following cultural norms or the centre has become being a good person, doing good things, or the centre has become... Well, anything other than Jesus and the gospel of what he did in his death and resurrection. And that's why we have such a strong conviction that Tolua is, is, a, is a, an important, significant place because it's about ensuring the next generation of leaders in the church know that Christ is in the centre and, and keep Christ in the centre. But it's not just over there. <laughs> no, the challenges and temptations are just as much for us. Because I think it's a temptation for each of us in our own lives to remove Jesus from the center. What's at the center of your life, if I asked you that question? Or put it this way, what love are your actions compelled by? Is it the love of Christ? Or perhaps there's aspects of your life compelled by other loves. And these loves can be subtle. Is your life compelled by a love of recognition and influence? Are your actions motivated by a love of comfort and security? Day by day, are you motivated by a love of approval and acceptance? Some in the Corinthian church, these these guys were missionaries. But their mission was centred on an outward recognition. They were centred on their own power and profit. Jesus was no longer at the centre. You see, every single one of us is on mission for something or someone. Every one of us in this room, in fact, everyone outside this room, around the world, everyone is on a mission for the thing which they love. Every one of us is compelled by our loves. The question is, are you on Jesus' mission or your own? Are you compelled by Christ's love or your own loves? It's a hard word, but an important word for us to think and consider and ponder tonight. Because when we have Jesus at the centre of our lives, when we're moved first and foremost by Christ's deep and sacrificial love, well, then we eagerly desire to participate in God's mission in in radically generous and sacrificial ways. So Christ's, so mission is Christ-centred. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on in this passage to talk about another key fundamental aspect of mission, and that is mission is God-given. So have a look with me where he goes in verse 18. And here he describes the gospel again, but he's emphasizing now that God is the one who's the source of both the gospel and its ministry. Verse 18 keeps going on. So he just talked about being a new creation in Christ. And then he says, 
all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now, the word reconciliation came up a number of times in those verses, and he mentions it again in verse 20. I think the gospel in one word, if you could summarize it in one word, is reconciliation. But it's not a word we often use, is it, in everyday lingo? Reconciliation just means exchange. It's a change of relationships, one from enemy to friend, one from hostility to friendship. And when it comes to God, it's our sin that's caused an offence to God, our rejection of his love, our rejection of his work in the world, our rejection of him. That is what has broken the relationship between us and God. And so the relationship needs to be fixed for there to be reconciliation. Usually that's through making restitution. It's through an apology. It's through paying them back in some way. So, for example, I see this every day at home with our kids. I'm glad they're not here so they can't hear this. But constantly, every day, they will, have, they will come into a fight. They're playing with their toy cars. We have like a million toy cars and they always fight over the one car. And they're fighting over this car and one car boy steals the car from the other. It's World War III breaks out. And I need to reconcile them back together. So how do we do it? The one who's done something wrong, who's stolen the car, needs to give the car back, make restitution, say sorry, five minutes in timeout. You see, the offendee must remove the grounds for the offence. To put it in simple English, the wrongdoer must fix the thing they did wrong. That's how you seek reconciliation. But... I want to show you something really significant and incredible about the gospel and about God in this verse. Because when it comes to God, who is it that fix our, fixes our relationship with God? Who fixes the issue of our sin? Well, did you have a look in those verses? It's actually God who is always the primary initiator of reconciliation. He is the one doing the reconciling. Look at verse 18. God reconciled us to himself. And then verse 19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. In fact, in the literature of the ancient world, wherever this word reconciliation is used, it is never used where the offended party is doing the reconciling. Outside of the New Testament, The one who causes the offence, the sinner, is always the one who needs to reconcile themselves to the the innocent. But not the gospel. The gospel is God's gospel. The gospel is God's work. He is the one reconciling us to himself. Our sin destroyed the relationship and he is the one who deals with it. Him, not us. That is incredible. That is mind-blowing. That is so, so good. And the question we ask is how? How how could he forgive us our sin? Well, the answer's there three times. Did you notice? 
Verse 18, it is through Christ. And then he expands on that in verse 19. In Christ, he does not count our sins against us. And then in case we missed it, he just rams it home for us. Verse 21, have a look. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange. This is love. This is the gospel. And it has radical implications for the way Paul thinks about his mission work. Because if the gospel is God's gospel, then gospel mission is God's mission. Did you notice at the end of verse 18 there? God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then at the end of verse 19 and 20, he committed to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, we are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were the one making his, his appeal through us. And so we implore on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is God's message, God's reconciliation, and we are but envoys and ambassadors, representatives, God's instruments to a broken world. And the implications are profound. I'm only going to quickly cover three. One is participation in mission. Because if mission is God's, which he's entrusted to us, the church, we can't decide whether to get involved or not. It's given to us. It's there. It's not up to us. We can't let it pass us by. We must participate because God has entrusted it with us. You see, he's called us to participate and we cannot sit in the sideline. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all involved in the same way. We're the body. We're made up of different parts. Some will be all the way up the front. Some will be all the way down the back, supporting the work in different ways. But all of us must participate in some way or another because God, it's God's entrusted to us. But second is partnership. We partner with God in his mission. It means that mission is God's work and then its fruit is God's fruit. Its successes or failures rest on him and this guards us against two things. First, if our ministry and mission work is going terribly, well, God is in control. And in fact, he's the one bringing it about or not bringing it about. It takes the burden, it takes the guilt off. But second way to think about it, it also means that if our ministry or mission is flourishing, going super great, well, it protects us from pride because God is the one bringing it about. And when you understand this, being involved in God's mission then becomes simply a privilege to be able to partner with God in what he's doing in the world. And third, and I think most importantly, prayer. You see, if God, if mission is God's mission first and foremost, then we must never work independently of God in mission. We cannot do it ourselves. We must depend on him at all times. Samuel Zwemer was a famous missionary, and he, this is my favorite missionary quote. As a missionary, you always have a favorite missionary quote. This is mine. The history of missions 
is the history of answered prayer. The history of missions is the history of answered prayer. Friends, we said that the question of why be involved in mission is, is found in a clear understanding of what mission is. And we've seen tonight that mission is Christ-centered and God-given. One man understood this really, really clearly, the urgency and nature of mission. This guy was John G. Patton. He's one of the very first missionaries to Vanuatu. Uh, he was in preparing to leave Scotland, and there were some there who tried to stop him from going to the South Pacific. This is an excerpt from his, Bibli- uh, his autobiography. Among many who sought to deter me was one dear old Christian gentleman whose crowning argument was the cannibals. You'll be eaten by cannibals. At last I replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honouring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. (laughs) It is another favourite missionary quote, I've got to say. Where does this zealous sacrificial commitment come from? Well, did you see that Jesus was at the very centre of his response? You see, John was convicted and compelled by Christ's love. And he was mobilised for a life of gospel mission because he was compelled by Jesus' love expressed in the events of the gospel. And then he saw it as a privilege to be able to participate in God's work taking the good news to a world that desperately needed to hear of it, no matter what the consequences. My prayer for us tonight is that we, in our everyday life, in our mission to our neighbour, in our mission to the ends of the earth, we would be compelled by that same love, the love of Christ expressed in the gospel and the same conviction that it is first and foremost God's work. So why don't I pray that for us now? Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus, for his life, his death, and his resurrection. We thank you for the new creation, that we are in Christ, that we have been completely forgiven, that our sin was taken by Christ on that cross, And Father, we pray that that deep love would move us each and every day to be involved in your work in this world and help us at all times to remember that mission and ministry is your work, that you call us to and entrust us with and may we see it day by day as a privilege to be a part of it. Lord, we pray this all for Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.